Romans and go to chapter 1. I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, and then I'm going to go down to verses 14 to 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Good morning, everybody. I suppose we really shouldn't talk about one subject this morning, should we? You know, hey? It was only a point, but it was a point to win a big cup, wasn't it? Or a small one. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful full morning it's been. Together as your people. Gathered in your presence gathered around your words, singing your praise, hearing of the work that you've done in Mark and Izzy's life. And I pray now that you would, you would magnify Jesus Christ again in this place, through this word, through this message. I pray that you would act in power, in conviction, by the Holy Spirit on the gospel to refresh lives, to restore souls, to bring joy, to bring more light, and that together we would stand as your people. And so we stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you work in and through me for your glory's sake, the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so there's our, there's our passage this morning, Romans 1, 1, uh, Romans 1, 17 and Romans 1, 1 to 5. I'll interact between those two. And there's a statement for you or a, a title for you here. Here we stand. Now, people rightly look down over history and remember certain pivotal days or times. 
I want to do a little test this morning. I want to test your Australian history. So I'm going to put up a date and a time, and you tell me what it was. And for everyone you get wrong, I get a bag of lollies from you. Is that, is that fair? No? Okay. Well, well, we'll just... Okay, that was quite strong, so we'll, we'll take it as a no. 1st of January, 1901. Oh, you guys are too clever. Okay, I need to write, I need to read you what I've written here. Now, okay, that was Federation Day. It was when the, uh, the, the British colonies of Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania, South Australia, and Western Australia all came together as a republic, right? As a federation, right? Cool. Okay, you got one out of one. Let me give you the second date. 25th of April, this one's a fairly easy one. 25th of April, 1915. Mm, it's Anzac Day, isn't it? And uh, lest we forget when the Australian New Zealand troops landed at Anzac Cove, and we know the result, lest we forget. This is a very important date. 1st of July, 1975. Anybody want to know what date that was? Very important. Hmm? Who? What did you say, Will? Huh? No, no currency change. I'll, uh, I'm not even going to give you a clue. Huh? Anyone there? No, 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 no. I'll give you a clue. Huh? No. Whitlam government did something. The Whitlam government introduced what was then known as Medibank, which later in 1984 became... And some of us love Medicare, don't we? We love driving past that place. Right, that was Medicare Day. Here's a very important day, but a very dark day in our history. 28th of April, 1996. Do anybody remember what happened there? Hmm? Yeah, that was the Port Arthur massacre in Tasmania, wasn't it? How about this one, 13th of February, 2008? Give you a clue. Hmm? What? What about South Africa? <laughs> and we are so grateful for that, aren't we, Stuart? I'll give you, I'll give you a clue. Kevin Rudd. Here we go. Kevin Rudd delivered a national apology to indigenous Australians, particularly to the stolen generations. And then, hmm? Okay, I better move on. Things are deteriorating here. I'll give you one more date. Well, two more. Oh. 24th of June, 2010. Ooh, Fiona, very good. Julia Gillard, the 27th Prime Minister of Australia and the first female Prime Minister in our history. But do you know this date? The 31st of October, 1517. It is a day that Christians should know. It's a, it's a day that Christians should commemorate. And the 506th anniversary is on Tuesday. It was the date that an Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed 95 protests against the Roman Catholic Church as he nailed them to the castle door of Wittenberg in Germany, which sparked what was known and has come to be known as the Reformation. 31st of October, 1517, was a signature date in the life of the Church of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther was a monk who was somewhat tormented in his search for peace before a holy God. 
The Roman Catholic Church had been drifting into heresy and gospel corruption for the past thousand years and sadly is still in that drift today. Martin Luther came to the place where he protested against the Roman Catholic Church that taught basically that salvation was by faith in Jesus plus. It was faith in Jesus plus baptism, plus church membership, plus confession, plus indulgences, plus praying to the saints, plus the veneration of Mary, plus relics, plus lost rites, plus purgatory, basically that you could buy your way out of hell. God used a Roman Catholic monk to spark the greatest gospel revival in human history. And it was this verse in Romans 1.17 that was that final shaft from heaven that shone into his troubled soul, that illuminated his heart and giving him the rest that he so badly craved and desired. If we could sum up the centerpiece of the Reformation, it would be in these two words, sola fide. Sola fide, which is shorthand for justification by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. In the words of the Genevan reformer John Calvin, he said justification by faith alone is the main hinge on which salvation turns. Luther said justification by faith alone is the pivotal doctrine. It is the heart of the gospel. This is the chief fountain from which all other doctrines flow. As the reformers would go on to say that if we get this wrong, if we get justification by faith alone wrong, we get everything wrong. Here's a wonderful quote by Luther himself. He said, this doctrine, justification by faith alone, begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God, without which the church of God cannot exist for one hour. Without justification by faith alone, the church is nothing more than a glorified social club. Without sola fide, the church is without the power and the presence of God. There are some hills worth dying on. There are some truths worth going to the stake for. Justification by faith alone is one of those. Justification by faith alone, sola fide, it must be known, it must be believed, it must be received, it must be lived, and it must be embraced because without justification by faith alone, there is no salvation. None. Here's our verse for this morning. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's a righteousness that is by faith from first to last Just as it is written in the prophet Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. And what I want to do this morning for the next few minutes, I want to drill deeply into this verse. I want to drill deeply into the gospel well. I want us to drink from the well of life that our souls may be refreshed yet again. You might be someone here this morning and you're still looking for that peace and rest of your soul. It was the group you 2 that sang the song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. You'll find it here this morning. Perhaps you're someone here this morning and you're still trying to work your way up into heaven 
But like Luther, you know that you're failing miserably. Jesus says, you come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. There may be some of you here this morning, you are Christian. But you've climbed back onto that hamster wheel of works. Somehow thinking that justification by faith alone has saved you, but you've got to keep doing the hamster wheel of works in order to keep yourself saved. Hope that you'll get off the wheel of fortune this morning. And to those of you here this morning that are righteous, those of you living by faith, I pray that this will be just a refreshing reminder, bringing further light, further joy, and further hope into your heart. I'm going to unpack the verse. I'm going to pull it apart. I'm going to do it in and around a little bit of the life of Martin Luther himself. And hopefully we're going to land together at the end saying, here we stand. Here we stand. So let's start in that verse with the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. There is a righteousness that God is. And that he gives. We could say it like this, that God gives the righteousness he is. It's an astonishing statement. God gives the righteousness that he is. Put it slightly differently. The righteousness of God is his perfect, moral, holy character. The righteousness of God is the perfection of his holiness, the splendor of his attributes. The righteousness of God is the moral perfection of his being. It is who he is. There is a righteousness that God is and a righteousness that he gives. He gives the righteousness that he is. Psalm 11 verse 7 says, The Lord is righteous. Psalm 145, 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways. The Lord is righteous in who he is, and therefore is righteous in all that he does. And therefore God calls on every man, woman, and child to be righteous as God is righteous. That is the call of the Bible. God put it like this in Leviticus 19, verse 2, where God said, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Jesus put it like this in Matthew 5, 48. He said, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, Martin Luther, as a, as, a, as a Catholic monk, he knew this. And he knew that he was unrighteous. He knew that he was unholy. And therefore, the call to be righteous, the call to be holy, the call to be like God tormented his soul. And in his pursuit of trying to be righteous before a holy God, it nearly drove him insane. Luther understood that God was righteous, and he understood the call of God for him to be righteous. But the problem with Luther, like so many today, he went looking for it in the wrong place. Do you see where it is? Do you know where it is? Have a look at it in the verse. For in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is found where? 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 
Luther believed the righteousness of God was found in keeping the laws of God. He thought it would be found in the traditions of the church, the laws of the church. He thought he would find it by keeping the rituals and the relics and the fasts and the ceremonies. He knew Romans 3 verse 10 says, there's no one righteous, not even one. That he was morally impure, that he was morally imperfect, was self-evident to his soul. I want to ask you this morning, is it self-evident to you? That you are unrighteous. Is it? So because Luther believed that God required good works to be righteous, what happened was every time he failed, it crushed him. And yet he chased harder and harder after the good works. Failing over and over, falling harder and harder, even coming to hate God because he could not fathom how a righteous God could expect righteousness from him, which he could never achieve by his own righteousness. At one point, this, Luther said this, this was before his conversion, he says, love God. Sometimes I hate him. Why? Because there was no comfort for Luther because no matter what he did, it was like he was trying to please someone that could never be pleased. We've had those sort of people in our lives, haven't we? Maybe a parent or two. A little bit later on, this is what Luther wrote about his life. He said, I was a good monk and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. If I had kept it any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, readings, and other work. Despite Luther's best efforts at holiness, he was a distraught monk with a very troubled soul. Let me read this quote to you. It won't come up on the screen. It's a little bit longer. He later wrote, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if, indeed, it is not enough that miserable sinners, eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel, and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raise with a fierce and a troubled conscience. If God is righteous in his being, and expects people to be righteous in their being, and it is self-evident that we are not righteous, is it not self-evident that there's no human way we could ever be righteous by our good works? Is it not self-evident? But then one day, one day the shaft of light from heaven broke through into the very conscience and heart of Martin Luther. Because he finally discovered that the righteousness of God is what? Is revealed in the, in the gospel. Where's the gospel. Where is the righteousness of God revealed? Where is it seen? Where is it known? 
Where is it to be had? In what? In the, in the gospel. How did Luther miss it? How did Luther miss it? Why do so many people miss it today? Maybe you're still sitting here, someone this morning, and you still missed it. I'll give you two reasons why Luther missed it. Just two. One, a corrupt church that fed a religious lie based on money. And the second reason is because Luther did not read the Scriptures carefully. The very righteousness of God that Luther needed to stand before a holy God was in the gospel. And it was there all the time in front of him. Look at the verse. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. For in the, in the gospel. And what this verse is saying is staggering. There is a way to be righteous before God. There is a way to be holy as God is holy. There is a way to be morally perfect as God is morally perfect. There is a way, there's a way to be spotless and blameless and perfect and righteous before a holy God whose eyes are too pure to look on sin. There is a way. Am I joking? Sounds like a joke. Let's put it slightly differently in 2 Peter 1 verse 4. Peter says, through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them, here it comes, that you may what? Participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Do you see it? See, part of the righteousness of God is, is, is the divine nature of righteousness, and we can have it. We can be part of it. We can participate in it. It can be ours, it can be, but it doesn't come from monkery. It doesn't come from religiosity. It doesn't come from human endeavor. It doesn't come from human effort. It doesn't come from human betterment. It doesn't come from learning from your mistakes. It doesn't come from trying harder. It doesn't come from trying to be a better failure than someone else. It comes from seen in, revealed by, known in the, in the gospel. <laughs> of the gospel. Now, if you're looking at that verse carefully, you would have noticed that the gospel is not explained in that verse. Did you notice that? It tells us what's revealed in the gospel. It shows us what can be known from the gospel. It can be known. It tells us from what we can have. That, that we can have. It's the righteousness of God. It doesn't tell us what the gospel is. So, to know the gospel, you've got to back up a little bit, back into the earlier part of the chapter, into Romans one one to five, which is why Rob read that. I'm just going to take you through it. Three easy steps. I want you to see the gospel. So take a look at verse 1 of Romans 1. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Do you notice that it's the gospel of God? It's, it's God's gospel. It's not man's. It's God's solution to the human dilemma. The gospel, the good news, it doesn't originate with man. Have a look at Romans 1 verse 2. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. 
The gospel was promised in the Old Testament. It was foreshadowed in the Old Covenant. In other words, the gospel is nothing new. It's not a new invention, which means that, 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 that the way that people in the Old Covenant become righteous through the gospel is the same way people become righteous today through the gospel. It's, it's, it's not like there is righteousness by works in the Old Covenant, but it's righteousness by the gospel in the New, new Covenant. No, no, no. It's God's gospel promised in the Old Testament. And now here it comes. What is this gospel? It's regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel is God's son. It's Jesus Christ who in his humanity was a descendant from David, but the son of David was the divine son of God who came and lived and died and rose to be Lord of all. The gospel is the good news that the divine son of God, as promised in the old covenant, was born as a descendant of David, lived, died, rose, in order that men and women can be righteous. The gospel is Jesus. It's him. It's who he is. It's what he did so that we can become righteous participating in the words of Peter in the divine nature. That's why Paul writes it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. He says, it's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, he is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. You see, the righteousness and the holiness that Luther sought was in the gospel of God's Son, Jesus. And here it comes, who provides righteousness by his sinless life and his substitutionary death. Let me walk you through a couple of very important scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, just three. I want you to drink them. I want you to ponder them. I want you to think about them. I want you to meditate on them. Here's the one from the Old Testament. Here's the gospel. His sinless life and his substitutionary death. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Now remember, as I was written about 800 years before Christ came, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit. In his mouth. Two Corinthians five twenty one. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become there it is, the righteousness of God. about 1 John 3 verse 5, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him there is the sinner's life and the substitutionary death. Just one more from 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1 verse 18, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. 
No, no, no. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Because the laws of God, reflecting the character of God, require perfect obedience from his sin bearers, Jesus Christ came as God incarnate, fulfilling all the laws of God by perfectly obeying the Father every moment of his life from his heart. And because the wages of sin is death in hell, Jesus went to Calvary to pay the sin debt that we could never pay. Which takes us to solo fide faith alone. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You are declared righteous when God credits your sinful life with the sinless life of Jesus and the substitutionary death of Christ. You are declared righteous when God deposits into your spiritual bankruptcy the riches of Christ in his life and his death. Received how? Sola fide. By faith alone. Faith alone in what Christ has done alone. There is nothing more and there is nothing less. A Christian is someone who is declared forgiven at the cross and declared righteous by the obedience of Jesus unto life and the obedience of Jesus unto death, received by faith alone. Notice it says, just uh, that is is by faith from first to last. In the Greek, it simply says from faith to faith, from faith to faith. A once-for-all, forever declaration, you are forgiven and righteous in the eyes of God, ever only received by faith, nourished by faith, fed by faith. And what Paul is saying by quoting the, 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 the prophet Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, he's just pushing it again. That's from the Old Testament. It's always been by faith alone. It's always sola fide. Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New, it's always been there. Just that it was, it was in the shadows in the old covenant. So let me start to uh, bring this home for you. Here's my first question to you What is justification by faith? It is the act of God where God declares. Now, I want you to please listen to this as carefully as you can. What is justification? It is the act of God where God declares you are morally pure, right, holy, and perfectly blameless before him because of the sinner's life of Christ. And his substitutionary death. I want you to hear it like this. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you have been declared by God 
to be morally pure, morally right, morally holy, and perfectly blameless because of what Christ did for you. Staggering. Is that you? Is that you? Are you righteous? Has God declared you morally righteous because of Jesus? Staggering. Second, here we stand. Jude 3 writes it like this. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, justification by faith, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Look at that verse carefully. Brothers and sisters, we are to contend for the faith. Or if I could put it into sort of Reformation heritage language, we are to protest. We are to protest when the gospel of grace is perverted, when something is either added to the gospel of Jesus or taken away. And I really think you need to feel the venom of the Apostle Paul in this. When he writes this in Galatians 1, verse 8 and 9, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. It's pretty strong language, isn't it? How about verse 9? And, as we've already said, so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. We are Protestants. We are Protestants. Because we stand with Martin Luther in standing against the abuses of those who would pervert the gospel and corrupt it, which is by faith alone in Christ alone. We have to stand with modern Luther as he, as he took those 95 protests and he nailed them to the door, the castle door of Wittenberg. Because the glory of the gospel of grace was then and still now is being corrupted. We're going to sing a wonderful song in just a moment. It'll just sort of we bring this together and encapsulate everything, but here's a couple of lines from the song that we're going to sing. Here we stand, the church of the redeemed, ransomed by the blood that set us free. Here we stand, contending for the faith, standing for the truth in every age. One more little history quiz question. Do you know that date? You say, that's a long time ago. You weren't born. No, you weren't. Anybody know what happened on that date? Any, uh, I'll give you a clue, Reformation boffs here. 18th of April, 1521. Martin Luther stood before the Imperial Diet of Worms 
in Germany. It was like a, a spiritual church court martial, if you want. And he was called before the emperor, and he was asked to recant justification by faith alone. Recant or die from the very words of the emperor himself. I don't know if I've got it here. Ah, there it is. And here's his answer. History books show that he was, his knees were knocking when he said this. Before the most powerful man in the universe at that time on earth. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I therefore cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. This is where I stand. This is where this church stands. Is this where you stand? Will you defend? Will you protest? Will you stand on justification by faith alone? Let me finish with this. Take a look at this in Jude 24. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Ooh, stop there. Let me read again. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. I want you to hear me. You will never spend eternity in glory unless you are without fault, you are blameless and pure. You will never stand before the presence of the Father in glory unless you are righteous. Christian, Christian, you are righteous. Received by faith in what Jesus has done. Christian, you are are morally pure. You are righteous. You are holy without blame or spot before the eyes of God. You are, and listen to me, Christian, you are righteous, and Jesus Christ therefore will present you to the Father. How one day? When He's raised you from the dead, how is He going to present you to the Father? Righteous, holy, pure, without spot, without blemish. And there will be great joy. Because of Jesus, we stand and will stand faultless, blameless, pure, and holy before a holy God. Good news? Great news? Ginormous news? Glorious news? Here we stand? Well, the gathering team, come and join me up front because we're going to stand together here. I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing this wonderful, wonderful hymn.